Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this series, we're excited to be partnering with the Rise Artisan Fund, an impact investment portfolio that invests in early-stage artisan enterprises, creating sustainable livelihoods for rural communities with few economic alternatives. We'll be speaking with the social enterprises that are part of their portfolio. And for more information about the Rise Artisan Fund, check out our show notes. In this episode, we are joined by Sonika Sarna of Sonika Sarna Designs, a community of fashion activists and sustainable fashion enthusiasts that design sustainable products for the conscious consumer, conducts workshops, masterclasses, and one-on-one consultation on everything from ethical design and production to mindful consumption, environmental stewardship, indigenous wisdom, and circularity, and provides impact-driven, sustainable supply chains for brands. We'll hear about what drives Sonika to do the work she does as she strives for impact in the fashion sector, the moments that have made her proud, and the legacy she hopes to leave behind through the brand. On with the show. Hi, my name is Sonika Sarna, and I'm the founder of a sustainable design and production company by the same name. My work in fashion and sustainability has spanned the last two decades where we've engaged various stakeholders within the fashion industry to have as much positive social environmental impact as possible. So while my work began in the space of production supply chains and partnering with global brands to have transparent social environmental impact over the years, we've also evolved to providing education and awareness to consumers and most recently launched a small limited edition consumer brand of thoughtfully made products that are created by a women's center project thrive so i'm basically a designer and activist at heart and i guess i've spent a little over two decades trying to help make fashion a force for good Sonika, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how this journey in fashion and activism began for you. How did it all evolve? Thank you, Naveen. That's an excellent question. Um, My work in fashion and activism actually is incredibly personal. Uh, I studied product design in fashion school and I worked in the factory environment in India very early on in my career. And this is the early 2000s when sustainability wasn't really a part of the international dialogue. And I got to experience everything from worker slums to garbage dumps of textile waste to just how fast fashion brands were treating their workers in my early 20s. And when you see a direct connect between your professional life and the environmental and social degradation around you, if you choose to care, it affects you in a way that you want to be part of a solution. And I guess that's how it began for me. I got to experience firsthand the problems that were evident in fashion very early on. And I kind of decided that I was going to go on a journey to either figure out solutions to make fashion cleaner, safer, or I was going to perhaps quit and become, I don't know, a chef or an organic farmer. Uh, So that's how the journey began for me. And um, over the years, I've, as I mentioned, I looked at apparel supply chains really closely because that's where a lot of my expertise lies. And when you understand the problem, then you can choose to figure out solutions. I think one of the things that worked in my favor is that I come from the apparel manufacturing sector, from the fashion industry. And so my technical skill and understanding of how the industry works gave me a strong foundation on what needed addressing. And from then on, it's been an incredibly rewarding, complex, and rich journey to 
find solutions, to be innovative, to find answers where there aren't any, and then to meet incredible people, partners, and just comrades like yourself uh, to help create change, which is now more and more becoming the norm as we're seeing in the last couple of weeks. And so reflecting back over these past two decades, who's your clientele or, or customer base and how has that evolved too, particularly around, you know, themes like sustainability, fair wages and, and the like? So honestly, when I first began to commit my life to working in sustainability and, and in fair trade, there wasn't really a pre-existing industry or a customer base. I had a skill set in product design and production, and my approach was I'm going to figure out ways to bring fair trade and organic materials and artisan partnerships into mainstream production. So I went really wide, whether it was fashion brands, whether it was wholesalers or retailers. I, I lived in the US for a while, and so I reached out to really everyone and anyone who would be willing to take a conversation with me, be willing to have a dialogue with me about uh, the solutions we could offer for them to have more positive impact through their buying decisions. Um, having started from that, we developed our expertise uh, over the last decade or so, and we evolved, I would say, to being a, a consulting and production company for, I would say, small to medium to large scale fashion brands all over the world. Really, any brand that wants to have any kind of positive impact, whether it's a goal to work with regenerative organic textiles, whether it's a goal to work with fair trade factories, whether it's a goal to empower women through the supply chain, we're able to offer them practical solutions from the ground up to make that happen. And having engaged with brands and having understood that a lot of the brand decisions to be sustainable is driven by the incredible power of the consumer has helped us evolve to widening our customer base to addressing consumers directly. And that's where our product collections as well as our masterclasses have come into play very actively over the last couple of years because we found that uh, the average consumer cares more than we know and is interested to learn more about the story behind the product, how it was made so that they can make better decisions. So our sustainability masterclasses on various topics as well as our product line is, I would say, a relatively recent uh, evolution from our core work of working with brands in the fashion supply chain. So I would say that's the arc over the last decade or so. It's great to hear how you're responding to these needs as well. So shifting the conversation to the business side of things that perhaps might not be as glamorous, but maybe you do enjoy this aspect of it as well. In, in terms of scaling the brand and growing it, could you share a little bit about how you have invested in things like talent, systems, process in a field that is quite frankly, super competitive? So what, what does that look like for you as a brand? And, and what are those challenges um, you've encountered as you've grown as well? It's a really interesting question. Uh, I think what I learned very early on is that we needed to have realistic goals and be very clear and upfront with ourselves about what we were trying to achieve. Uh, we didn't have room for romantic notions because a lot of ideas sound wonderful, but implementation is a whole other ballgame. And so we've always been very rooted in the reality of how fashion is today. We've dialogued with customers day in and day out for decades, gathered data and understood that a lot of fashion brands want to do better, and but we understand what their constraints are. Uh, they might have financial limitations, logistical limitations. And so we've built solutions uh, around sustainability, fair trade and impact while addressing the pain points of our customer base, whether that's been a brand or the consumer, first understanding what the challenge is that's preventing someone from making better buying decisions and then helping them through the process of reaching their goals. I'm a firm believer that 
people want to do good, but there are obvious deterrents in their way. And rather than guilting people into making changes, perhaps helping them overcome the roadblocks is the way forward. And that's been the mantra that I've followed from the very beginning. We were okay with being a small bootstrapped organization for a very long time, primarily because we wanted to not at any level compromise on our goals. And so we stayed away from any high optics projects that perhaps were more greenwashing than real impact work. And so we took on any real work that came our way and we were grateful in the early days that anyone was willing to pay us for our expertise. But we got better and better and the early brand partnerships evolved into deep partnerships that have now spanned decades. And so there is a certain amount of financial stability and organic growth that comes with uh, having strong brand relationships as well as strong consumer support. When you stick with uh, your goals and sustainability was, you know, over a decade. So I have to say that we are fortunate to enjoy a lot of loyalty amongst our our community. And I learned very early on that this is the long road um, and I cannot do it alone. And so we spent a lot of time investing in, I would say, young fashion students graduating who are very eager to learn about fashion. And we spend a lot of time educating them on industry best practices because they are ultimately the future. And so my team is actually, we are on the side of a younger team because a big part of being engaged with us is them learning all of the research and data that we've gathered for over a decade. What that does is that it makes for a very dynamic work environment and everyone on the team is self-motivated and wanting to have real impact. And it also kind of I feel rest assured that I've done the work of sort of passing the baton forward and we have a whole new generation of of young designers and entrepreneurs who want to continue to work in sustainability and more importantly, have the skills and the tools to be able to actually have real and lasting change. Sonika, what are three moments that have made you proud in, in leading this mission and brand? Um, This might might sound a bit corny, but I'm proud every day. Uh, I look back at my journey in sustainability and I just feel really lucky that I was able to find something that I could be of service to, that I could dedicate my life to. And so I sincerely mean that I'm grateful and proud of the opportunity that life has given me every day. But if I had to be more specific, our Women's Centre Project Thrive, which is a sewing centre for women who live in the slums of New Delhi, we bring in women who have never worked and they go through a paid training programme and then they become full-time seamstresses at our organisation. Women who perhaps came in really soft-spoken, not able to assert themselves, having no self-confidence, very quickly evolved to becoming women who are assertive at home and at work, taking initiative and more responsibility. And it's fairly common for someone who comes in with virtually no skill set to becoming a valuable employee who earns as much, if not more than her husband, and then goes on to educate her daughter. So moments like those, I think, are what make me incredibly proud. I think the other big one was that there's a sustainability uh, platform called Common Objective, which has recognized us as amongst the 10 most sustainable companies worldwide two years in a row. And that for a small organization like ours is a huge tip of the hat that clearly we're doing something right. I think the third thing would be that a lot of the artisan communities that we work with, many of the current generation of weavers, their children are choosing not to continue weaving because they don't see financial viability. But we have a particular community in in Telangana in South India where a weaver unfortunately passed away and his 18-year-old daughter, her name is Chandana, she's actually hosting an Ikat masterclass with me later this week, has chosen to continue her father's business. And so a female entrepreneur in the artisan sector of the future generation choosing to continue to work and and continue her family's textile heritage um, just felt hugely impactful because 
We're one of the few customers that she depends on for orders. So I would say those three perhaps would be the, the, the high points of, from recent years. Thank you. Those are some great reflections. And just to dig into that last example you shared, I'd be curious to know, Sonika, your thoughts on when some of these traditions like weaving or art forms or craft heritage become less common, where do you see opportunities for this next generation, particularly in skills like handloom, where we know the physical toll it takes on an individual and that the cost or returns for each meter or yardage of ikat, for example, can be a lot. It isn't always cost effective. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. And it's really nuanced and complex. And a disclaimer here that this is my personal opinion. There are very many others who've invested in communities far longer. And, you know, we speak about the artisan sector as one thing, but actually it's local, regional and very diverse. So this is just my take um, based on my limited exposure and, and for good fortune of having worked with communities over a long period of time. The thing with craft heritage over and above the loss of culture for craft eyes is the alarming understanding that their way of life is actually not only just eco-friendly, but that perhaps is the most sustainable way to make textiles. Working with indigenous cotton, working with handloom, employing entire families that include the elderly and the women is socially and environmentally responsible. And if we lose that way of life, of which textiles are central, we actually would be losing incredible socially and environmentally beneficial wisdom. And it's um, not smart to reinvent the wheel and first create environmental problems by making toxic fabrics and then finding solutions to fix that. And actually, we've had really viable solutions with us all along. And so a big part of my work is communicating with brands who want to work with sustainable fabrics and helping them make the connection that sustainable and indigenous are often... Uh, interchangeable and not a lot of people make that connection but years of working with sustainable textile mills and certifications and on the other hand working with organic fabrics as well as artisanal fabrics has helped me understand that perhaps the traditional way of doing things working with dyes extracted from nature and and whatnot perhaps is the easiest most organic and healthy way forward so one if we want to save the planet we want to think about preserving these ways of life and uh, my two cents to this large situation is that craft communities are very good at craft but perhaps have not had the exposure to the marketplace, to design, to economic opportunity, to funding, to really what we consider entrepreneurial skills are because they do not have the exposure, the understanding that their dying craft might be something that's hugely in demand, perhaps in a store in Paris. Uh, so we run an artisan training program or an incubation program rather, where over a period of a year, if a community engages with us, then the artisan community leaders are taught entrepreneurship and fashion industry related skills, things like how to do sampling, how to do color matching, how to manage your customers' expectations, how to plan for, uh, you know, holidays and festivals, uh, how to ask for financial deposits, how to manage their supply chain, all of those things. And what you will find is artisans, when they once are exposed to business skills, many of them actually are able to run very, very financially viable businesses, artisan businesses. And I think that's the future because the younger generation, if they've seen their families toil, if they've seen the artisans being equated to mere labor and being paid minimum wage, of course, they want better for themselves. But then if they're able to, for want of a better term, upskill to becoming artis artisan entrepreneurs where they are paid well for their traditional precious textile heritage by people who appreciate what they have to offer, then perhaps there is a desire and an aspiration to continue the legacy of the family because they're given the financial benefit and the respect that they deserve. So a big part of our work is, is focused on providing them industry-relevant skills so that their way of life can continue. That's a really interesting model 
that I think would resonate with a lot of people in the sector too. And as a quick follow-up to that, how do you, at a personal level, hold that tension? Because as you know, culture is constantly evolving. And so that tension of this traditional or indigenous lifestyle with all the change and advances in technologies that are ever present, how how do you hold that balance or, or tension? I think both can very smoothly coexist. For example, in the handloom sector, there's often simple things like machine inputs and things that make a traditional textile heritage far more cost effective without destabilizing the way of life of the community. And so I really would say that there is room for both. There is certainly room for innovation. There's also room for art. Uh, It's a question of finding a balance between the two. I would say that as far as holding space for this conflict or this tension is concerned, it's not for us to decide. Uh, a community is um, the steward of, uh, you know, generations old heritage. They understand inside out its significance and its impact on their lives. And I think when they're given options of modern technology, they perhaps are the best judges of what is viable for them. For example, in in, in, in Telangana, handloom weaving and especially e-cut weaving which continues to do well. Uh, some of the weavers are choosing to do e-plug weaving on power looms. When I visit their homes, I see that the noise levels of the power looms is really high and perhaps not healthy for them. So our job is to make sure that they're aware of the pros and cons of uh, technology, uh, but ultimately I think communities uh, have the right to make choices that are good for them. And so that is the space that we hold, that we create awareness and understanding and opportunity, and then the communities get to decide what's best for them. Uh, you know, even, for example, for dyes, a lot of artisans chose to switch to chemical dyes because they were cheaper. But we actually walked them through the health impact of those chemical dyes, which they were not previously made aware of. So, again, lack of information, lack of exposure. But if you educate them on what it means to expose your skin and your lungs repeatedly to certain chemicals, then they get to choose, uh, in fact, if the modern technology is better or worse for them. Well, you know, here's what's really interesting when it comes to cultural appropriation. What, what, what I chafe at, for want of a better word, is when there are dialogues and panels on cultural appropriation, but the community uh, that we're supposed to be protecting doesn't have representation on those panels. And so if you really want to have a real, like, for example, the artisan masterclasses that we hold on ECOT and financial dyes, uh, cultural appropriation is covered in great depth. But I'm in no position to be an expert on that field. So the artisan community representatives speak on behalf of their community. Um, they get to, uh, to decide how their culture is treated and they get to have a say. And here's what's really interesting, right? You take away from a community and then you make a brand around trying to protect them. But isn't that kind of defeating the purpose of respecting the very community you're trying to save? Uh, So when we talk about uh, a community and its culture and its heritage and their needs and how they want to be represented and whether they want you know, simply credit or whether they want financial remuneration or whether they want none of the above or whether they want just orders and nothing else. We are the least equipped to be having that dialogue. The community themselves needs to be front and center in that dialogue. And that perhaps is the one thing I have very low patience with is when others who are not from the community deem to be experts. And that's when I'll speak up and say, who are we? Ask the community that you're trying to save. Like everyone has, I think, a bit of a savior complex in them. And I've always maintained that just because someone is perhaps financially disadvantaged does not mean that they're less then create the opportunity in this space for them to speak up as to what their needs are and how they like to be treated give an equal footing in terms of education opportunity and exposure and for example does the community understand its legal rights 
Uh, do they understand that if their designs or traditional heritage motifs are being used, that there's an idea of intellectual property and there's a loss to them when someone in China replicates it on the machine and how that means no further orders for them. Create that awareness and let them be part of the dialogue and decide uh, what compensation, representation or benefit they're looking for. I think people can take very good care of themselves and we can only provide them just what's missing and, and let them lead from that point on. So empower them to be in a position to take decisions that are good for their community. That's the role I feel we, we have to play. Thanks for that, Seneca. Well, what is it that keeps you up at night? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Talk about digging right in. Um, a couple of things, really. Uh, one, that there's, a, for want of a better word, a bucket load of misinformation out there. Uh, the danger of something becoming cool is that it's very hard then to find real data as opposed to just everyone jumping on the so-called sustainability bandwagon. Words like handmade, ethical, sustainable mean absolutely nothing. And it's very hard for a consumer to tell, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff when there is going to be so much noise as it is, as is the case in fashion at the moment. Also, what's really challenging is when people claim something to be sustainable or what have you without actually being that way and are therefore cheaper. If anything, it undercuts the people actually investing in the communities and doing good. And so the reason I engage so much online, we have these dialogues as part of Project Thrive. We have these masterclasses. We're actually doing a, a series of educational classes on sustainability for free, primarily because we want to have equipped the consumer with information. But the misinformation out there, I think, is the one thing that keeps me up at night. The other thing really is just very simple. No matter how much we do, it's never enough. Sometimes it feels like a, a, a sinking ship because for every brand that we partner with to do good, there's another Walmart or a, or a Shein trying to mass produce more and more. I think there's dire need for legislature around wages and around banning certain toxic textiles like polyester. And in the absence of that, no amount of activism, activism seems to have the kind of skill of impact that we're needing with a huge amount of urgency more and more. And um, yeah, so I guess in that vein, we'd like to be able to do a lot more and don't always have the resources for it. So that poses its own unique challenges as well. For all of my work in sustainability and for all of the partnership and support, we're still very much a small organization. And so that has its own unique challenges because we are exposed to the vagaries of economic instability and COVID, same as everyone else, over and above the uphill task of, of running a social enterprise. And so we want to be able to keep doing the work we're doing but as we've all learned through the pandemic is that now nothing is a given. <laughs> so I guess those are some of the things that make sleep hard to come by. If you had to write an obituary for the brand, what would you say? What is the legacy that you'd like to leave behind? Uh, maybe this is a tall order, but if there's a legacy I want to leave behind is that one, that we were able to be of service to our community of artists and partners that we've worked with for a long time. Uh, and two, that we were able to have real positive, lasting change in the fashion industry. And we want to be able to do that is by having provided solutions and tools that make it easy and accessible for really anyone who works in the arts to be eco-friendly in their decisions. My core work has been one of bridging and one of providing access to information, resources, and tools. And so I guess if uh, one can be remembered as someone who was able to provide uh, solutions that have had positive change or that we've been able to help create ways to preserve the environment and culture and heritage purely by the process of making art, which is what I sincerely believe fashion is, I think it would be considered for me a life well lived. That's really lovely. 
And what would you do if the sky was the limit and you had no constraints? What are some of those dreams and aspirations for the brand? Well, I mean, there's a lot. That list is incredibly long. But uh, I would say the very first thing that if I was in a position, we would pass legislation right away that bans um, violation of human rights and the usage of certain materials that we know to be toxins for the environment and for human beings. So if I could somehow find the resources in the reach, that would be the first thing, because I sincerely believe that's, well, a big way to solve a lot of our problems because we need sweeping change. We need it fast. Um, The other thing I think uh, I would do is make it mandatory for passion schools to provide real usable skills for the generation that's graduating now to be able to right off the bat work in fashion in a sustainable and environment friendly fashion. Because um, as I mentioned, I work so much with the younger generation. I, I'll end up having conversations and interviews for internships, etc. And what I hear is that the fashion industry isn't changing fast enough and the younger generation wants to work in a better fashion industry, but the opportunities just don't exist. The education and awareness uh, does not exist either. The intent is is alive and well. Well, I think a lot of them are learning incredible research and theory, but like there's a lot of programs around sustainable design and fashion, and I'm sure they're great, but not many of them graduate with employable skills. For example, we teach a class on ethical design, so basically how to incorporate ethics into your design process. That's an application class that any professional designer can take and then apply into their business right away. Whereas what a lot of students are learning in college are data and research and statistics. And then when they graduate, there aren't enough jobs for them either. So I think there's holes in both those areas. And so if I could go in and write a curriculum uh, based on our 20 years of expertise that allows really any student to be able to graduate and have opportunity to, to make fashion a force for good, then that would be the dream. Well, Sonika, as we begin to wrap things up, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs in the social impact space? Having been in the sector for some time now, what is it that makes you hopeful about the impact that the sector can have? That's a very wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. I mean, I have to say this isn't for the faint-hearted, and so you can't fake it. What that basically means is that if you have an inner calling and a a burning desire to be of service and you know what kind of change you want to be a part of, it's almost spiritual. Like I know that I have to work on women's rights. It's something organic to who I am. Uh, Then you have to be willing to understand that the victories are sometimes small. Sometimes there are no victories at all and that it's a life path. It isn't a job or a career. It's the direction you've taken in your life and it'll be an incredible journey, but it will have its ups and downs. It's certainly a marathon, uh, not a sprint. The other thing I have to say is that you have to kind of, uh, you know, have your feet on the ground, even if you're dreaming big. And that's why having strong um Financial acumen in the sense of understanding the resources you need to have real impact is critical because at the end of the day, you're trying to be an entrepreneur and that's very important. And thirdly, I think being very honest about with yourself about the skills that actually contribute to the work you want to do. I mean, if you want to, for example, change the face of design and say you studied physics might not be the best natural fit for your sense of purpose. And so taking a good hard look at yourself When you say that you want to work in X industry and have Y impact, you have the skills for it because those skills are going to decide how good you're going to be at at bringing about change because tenacity is so important that if you're not good at your job, it makes it that much harder. And so you have to kind of check your ego at the door. Uh, One of the reasons I began to work, for example, in my case with brands, like I often get asked, why didn't you invest in being more of a brand yourself as opposed to partnering with other fashion brands? That's because I was very clear that I have a unique skill set. I'm very good at building supply chains. I have years of experience working 
with factories in India um, and having worked across cultures. And so I might not be the best designer. And so if I really want to have impact, I have to use every asset that I've got, every sort of tool I have in my bag. And so the impact goal comes first. And then you look at whatever skills you have and you use the hell out of them. And so in that sense, you have to be flexible, you have to be realistic, and you have to have patience. You have to know that some days just the work you're doing is reward in itself because accolades or recognition from outside sometimes does not come if at all. And even if it does, that isn't why you're doing this. You're doing this because it matters, it makes you happy, and it's worth the pain. Um, Otherwise, don't do it. Here's what I have come to learn, Noreen, is that you know, the business world is not toned after sustainability. Uh, you make a good business case for your sustainability solution and you're actually welcome with open arms. And so that's what I meant about having the skills that you have to figure out what you're very good at and where that marries your sustainability goals. And then all you have to do is kind of knock on every door possible and, and break down the door if no one's opening the door. And you will get the support you need. Um, and that's the thing, right, that we might have to compromise on a lot. We can't compromise on who we work with because you're kind of getting in bed with them. And so, for example, if I want to offer, you know, eco-friendly fabrics to say large fashion brands, I have to make a business case for it. Um, I have to convince them. And because what I'm offering has true value, there's actually very little pushback. But you have to know what your value add is and, and who the audience for it is. And you have to get good at connecting with them in an authentic and real way and being good at your jobs. And I do feel that then it's less of a struggle if you can find those for whom what you're offering is a genuine need. And the audience exists, right? We're, we may be a social enterprise, but we're an enterprise at the end of the day. We live on a planet that runs on money and environmental and social resources. And so social capital, networking, equity, all of that is the same rules as any other business with the added urgency of the need for social and environmental solutions. And if, you have, if you've done your homework and created a solution that's actually valuable, uh, it's, it's less of a struggle to find an audience for it. You have to be able to balance your abilities with knowing that you're running a business and that the two goals cannot be competing with each other. This has been such a great conversation, Sonica. I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I think this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time to give me the opportunity to share the work we've been doing. Um, I guess the only thing I will say is what I've said in the course of the conversation is that we need everyone to care about the planet. We need everyone to care about you know, human rights. It can't be anymore that a few businesses are fighting the good fight and we're glamorizing social enterprise. There is no other kind of enterprise needed anymore. We all need to change to make better environmental and socially responsible decisions if we are to survive as a species. I don't think this is an option anymore. Uh, with all of the research coming in on the climate crisis and what we're seeing in terms of human rights violations and war all over the world, there aren't enough of us making changes and, and picking the tougher road. But the thing is, if there's all of us working in social and environmental impact, there's power in numbers and it'll get easier for everyone. I do think that if anyone is even marginally inclined, uh, as you asked, is up at night wanting to have change, uh, we all need to be thinking a lot more about what we're doing with our lives in a purposeful way because everyone needs to kind of get on with it as a species, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback and feel free to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of the Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway and the Rise Artisan Fund. 